Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to Acts, the book of Acts in the New Testament. We're in chapter 2. Our specific text this morning is Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 41. The topic, Peter proves to the crowd that they crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead to sit at his right hand. Title of our message this morning, Caught Red-Handed Crucifying God's Right-Hand Man. (laughs) Well, that's the title. I don't know what's the matter with that. For people who don't know the difference between colts and cults, I just... (laughs) Poor Jake, he's wounded forever now because you laughed at him when he said colts. So... Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, crucified, and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Let's pray together. Father, we always appreciate the opportunity to spend time in your word. We want to take this next few minutes of our morning to focus and concentrate our heart's attention on the person and work of Jesus Christ as it's revealed 
by your Holy Spirit here in Acts chapter two. Be our teacher, guide and direct us, minister to each heart. As Jake indicated, Lord, in his prayer, you're, you're here to heal and to save and to bless. We ask that you would do it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. You might have an image of Jesus etched into your mind. If you're a North American, you probably see him as being taller than his disciples, lean with long, flowing, light brown hair, fair skin, and light-colored eyes, probably blue eyes. The trouble is, you probably got that image from a Sunday school picture or from watching Robert Powell portray him in Jesus of Nazareth. If you're raised in other parts of the world, you might have seen Jesus represented as black or Arab or Hispanic. To try to resolve the question of just what Jesus might have actually looked like, forensic anthropologists in Great Britain worked with Israeli archaeologists to reconstruct a possible face of Jesus. They used cultural and archaeological data as well as the physical and biological sciences as their references. Their findings were published a few years ago in a 2002 edition of Popular Mechanics magazine. The Jews Peter addressed in our text knew what Jesus of Nazareth looked like, but they didn't recognize him for who he was. He was their promised Messiah. He was the Christ, the anointed one, who was prophesied to come in the pages of their scriptures. Peter proved to them that the one they had crucified was their Lord. What must they do? As we go through the heart of Peter's Pentecost message, I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, proof positive Jesus is your Lord. And number two, prove publicly Jesus is your Savior. First of all, in verses 22 through 36, proof positive Jesus is your Lord. As you know, Peter had already been addressing the crowd. We're picking up his message in uh, kind of the middle of it, as you would say. After the disciples started praising the wonderful works of God in foreign languages they had never learned, the amazed bystanders asked, whatever could this mean? Peter explained it was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy of Joel that in the last days, God would pour out his Holy Spirit. It was what Jesus called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. As exciting as all that was, Peter wanted to focus the attention on the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. He wanted to tell them that Jesus of Nazareth was their Lord. He begins to do that in this section of his talk. Peter offered three proofs that Jesus of Nazareth is the prophesied Messiah. He had the rightful credentials, he was raised from the dead, and he was reigning in heaven at the right hand of God. In verses 22 and 23, Peter declared Jesus had the rightful credentials of their Messiah. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. The crowd knew Jesus in his humanity as the itinerant preacher from the city of Nazareth. They also knew and accepted his miracles, wonders, and signs. Don't think for a minute that the Jews denied the many miracles of Jesus. They did not. They were an established fact. It's taken liberal churches 2,000 years to deny the miracles of Jesus Christ. My favorite miracle denial is the feeding of the 5,000. 
where, you know, they come forth with the fish and the bread. The little boy has, has his, you know, little fish and bread. And, and those that deny the miraculous, liberal Christians uh, in certain denominations today, they say, well, what really happened, the real miracle was a miracle of sharing because the little boy brought forth what he had and then all the other people really were hiding their lunch. They didn't want to share it with others. And so once the little boy was willing to share his lunch, everybody was touched in a miracle of sharing and they all began to share their lunch and they had a great shared lunch that day. And isn't that wonderful? It's also wrong and stupid, but it is wonderful. <laughs> I, so uh, the Jews believed that Jesus did these miracles. They were an established fact, but since Jesus had been put to death, they did not see any possibility any longer of him being their promised Messiah. Peter told them that those things Jesus did made him attested by God. It means that they proved something. It means they were his credentials as the Messiah. Jesus often said the same thing. He told them to look at the works that he was doing because only their Messiah would do those works. They proved he was the promised Messiah because only that someone could do the mighty works they had seen Jesus do. What about his death by crucifixion? Didn't that cancel out his claim or their claim now that he was their Lord? On the contrary, you read in verse 23, him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. The death of their Messiah was foreseen and foreknown by God. It was not an accident. Before the creation of the world, God planned for its redemption, knowing Adam and Eve would fail and sin. That is why in the revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus is called the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, it was the plan and purpose of God that the Messiah would be offered as a sacrifice, slain, and this was set from the foundation of the world, before the world was founded, before there was a, a place for man to set his foot upon, this was already in place. The Jews had their scriptures where it spoke of the suffering of the Messiah as well as his rule and reign, and they didn't really understand it, and so now Peter is bringing this out. I want to point out an important subtlety in the wording. Peter said, you have taken by lawless hands. The you is a reference to the Jews. And oftentimes, sadly, tragically, with bigotry and hatred, the Jews have been accused of being those who killed Jesus Christ. They've been called Christ killers, and these kinds of things have been used against them in many ways. The U is a reference to the Jews. By lawless hands is a reference to the Romans. It's a reference to all Gentiles, really. It doesn't simply mean Jews who were breaking the law by killing Jesus. They weren't breaking any law. They were doing it according to the Roman law. Lawless people is a phrase that refers to non-Jews. Jews were those who were under God's law. Everyone else was lawless because they hadn't come into that. And so when Peter says he was taken, uh, you have taken by lawless hands, he's including everybody. Who killed the Lord? Jews killed him, Romans killed him, Gentiles killed him. By extension, he died for you and I, so everyone killed him. So don't be drawn into those ridiculous, bigoted arguments. Regardless God's foreknowledge, Peter declared they were personally responsible for putting Jesus to death. 
It was their choice. What I like about Peter's sermon is that he confronts these issues right away that we've struggled with for centuries and he acts like they're no big deal. We think of God's foreknowledge and man's free will as some kind of impossible philosophical dilemma, but Peter says God knew what was going to happen. He foreknew it. He foreordained it. It was predestined, and you're responsible for doing it. And we're like, whoa, stop right there. I need turtle talk with crush to figure this out, you know. What, what is, what, how am I going to figure this out? How can God be sovereign and have foreknowledge and I have free will? And so some men go so far as to conclude mankind cannot have free will if God is sovereign. But what we see as a dilemma is never presented as one in the Bible. God is absolutely sovereign and at the same time, man has free will. Try to understand it beyond that and you end up with a system of doctrine and belief that is inherently unbiblical. And it also becomes horrific in terms of how it portrays either man or God. Uh, And so those of you who struggle with this, don't get drawn into these arguments either. Is God sovereign? Absolutely. Does he have foreknowledge? Yes. Does he foreordain things to happen? Sure. Otherwise, he couldn't be God. Do you have personal responsibility and free will? Sure. Absolutely. How does that work out? I don't know. And no one does, and no one ever will, because it's not a dilemma in the Bible. It's presented as fact. It's a dilemma to our intellectualism and our desire to know everything perfectly and to have everything figured out. And, and, and uh, I want to say this respectfully, but people who think they have this figured out have sold out to human intellect, and they have left the careful reading of the Word of God. And so if you come up and ask me, you can fake me out in line today as you're leaving and say, do you believe in God's absolute sovereignty? I'll say yes. And then somebody else, do you believe the man has a free will? I'll say yes. And then you can try and trap me and I'll just say, I I just believe both of them and I don't know how they work out. And I'm happy because you don't either. (laughs) No one does and no one ever will. Now, Peter's first proved that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed Lord are the credentials that he flashed throughout his earthly ministry, miracles, wonders, and signs. The fact he was crucified did not cancel out his credentials. It is further proof, really, because it was always God's plan that the Messiah, the Christ, would suffer and die. In verses 24 through 36, Peter offers the second proof that Jesus of Nazareth is Lord, He was raised from the dead. Verse 24, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. I really like what Peter says here. It was not possible that Jesus could remain dead. You know, when you talk about the Lord to people, they say it's impossible that Jesus rose from the dead, which is silly. I mean, if there is a God why would it be impossible for God to raise someone from the dead? But a lot of people think that's incredible or impossible. And Peter matter-of-factly states that historically and prophetically and spiritually, it was not possible for Jesus to remain dead. And if the apostles had had you know, New Testament insight like we had, they would have been waiting outside the tomb for Jesus to emerge rather than cowering and hiding. Because And now Peter understood that. He says, man, it was not possible that he would remain dead. How does he know that? Well, in verses 25 through 31, he says, 
For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Now Peter quoted Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. David wrote the words, but the verses obviously could not apply to David, who was already dead and buried and whose body was in a tomb that they could visit. Acting as a prophet of God, David wrote about the Messiah. His soul, the Messiah's soul, would not remain in Hades. His body, the Messiah's body in the grave, would not remain there. By the way, your Bible might say hell and not Hades. It's an unfortunate translation. The word used here is for the temporary realm of the dead, more properly called Hades. Hell is the future final lake of fire. No one is there yet. Hades was described by Luke in the 16th chapter of his gospel. It consists of two compartments, East Hades and West Hades. Well, I, no, actually, actually one is called paradise and the other is just known as a place of torment. Prior to the death of Jesus, when a believer died, his or her soul went to paradise. The souls of unbelievers went to the place of torment. When Jesus died, the Bible indicates he descended into Hades to paradise. When he rose from the dead, he freed the souls that were in paradise to go to heaven. He took them with them, and they're in heaven now. Now the Bible says that when a believer dies... He or she is absent from their physical body and immediately present with the Lord in heaven. Unbelievers who die still go to Hades to a place of torment to await their final destination, which unfortunately is hell, the lake of fire. Peter gave them prophetic proof positive that their Messiah would die and be raised from the dead. He proved it from Psalm 16 out of the mouth of David. Then he applied the proof to Jesus of Nazareth, saying in verse 32, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. 120 men and women were ready to testify that they had seen and been with the risen Lord. They were ready to add their personal testimony to the prophetic testimony of Scripture. It was really a powerful argument. But there was one more argument to make. Not only did Jesus of Nazareth have the rightful credentials, not only was he raised from the dead, he was also reigning in heaven at God's right hand. Verse 33, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Quoting this time from Psalm 110, verse one, Peter showed that David understood a son of his would be Lord over him. 
Jesus of Nazareth was in the line of David. He had ascended into heaven. He was and he is that prophesied son of David. How could Peter be so certain? Well, let's follow his logic. Since the Holy Spirit was being poured out, then God must have sent him. Remember, that's how this whole sermon began. The Holy Spirit had fallen in a powerful way upon the 120, and the crowd was saying, what is going on? And so Peter said, the Holy Spirit's been poured out, therefore God must have sent him. Joel promised that one day the Spirit would come, and Jesus himself had promised to send the Holy Spirit. But if Jesus is dead, he cannot send the Spirit, therefore he must be alive. And furthermore, he could not send the Spirit unless he had returned to heaven to the Father. And so Jesus must have ascended to heaven. He must be seated at the right hand of God, just as David had prophesied he would. It is all proof positive that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And then in verse 36, Peter says, therefore, based on all of this evidence, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Christ, as you're aware, is not a name. It is a title. It is the translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah, and he was now reigning in heaven as Lord over all. But probably what they heard most in that last sentence was, whom you crucified. Wow. If you had recently crucified the Messiah that generations of Jews had been waiting for, and if he was now at God's right hand, and if what he was doing was making his enemies his footstool, was there any hope for you? And the answer is yes, because we'll see in verse 37 through 41, they could prove publicly that Jesus was their savior. I wanna point out, there must have been some hint in Peter's presentation that they still had hope. Because they say in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They had some indication that there was something that they could do. In other words, this wasn't all fire and brimstone, hellfire and damnation. This wasn't to condemn them. We'll see in a minute it brought conviction, but it didn't condemn them. There was something about Peter, his countenance obviously filled with the Holy Spirit, his presentation that offered hope. And it's a, it's a great encouragement to us, but it's also an example to us. We want to give people hope always. People in our world need hope. It's not just that the world is coming to an end, that we're living in the last days and everybody seems to have a nuclear bomb in their briefcase. It could go off any time, which is why we're collecting briefcases now at the door. But... It's that there is the hope of the coming of Jesus Christ to receive you into heaven, to retrieve you, as it were, from this this earth and to bring you home to the place that he's been preparing for you. And so whether it's as simple as as putting a smile on your face or receiving the joy of the Lord, which is your strength, I mean, we, we want to be hopeful, joyful in our presentation of the good news. It's good news, after all. Sure, there's some bad news. There's some really bad news. I like those jokes, you know, do you, there's bad news and there's good news, which do you want? 
And people do need to know that there's bad news, that they're on their way to, to Hades and then to hell. But the really good news is that there's hope in Jesus Christ, because he's not just the Lord who's making his enemies his footstool, not just the one who, at whose name every knee will bow and every tongue confess. He's also the savior from sin, from the problem within, and he's calling upon men and women to be saved for time and for eternity. And so they say, what shall we do? And we would say that they experience what we call conviction. In the biblical sense, conviction is seeing yourself exactly the way God sees you. There are more um, appropriate, more uh, fascinating theological definitions of conviction, but I really think that's, that's it in a nutshell. People who come under conviction, when the word of God is preached and the Holy Spirit is present, they see themselves the way God truly sees them. I know this is how I got saved. I had been exposed to some teaching on Bible prophecy and I was kind of in a funk about it, you know, a man, maybe there's a God, maybe he's alive, what does all this mean? And then there came a moment based on things I had heard in the word of God and the testimony really of my wife when I was convicted of my sin for the first time ever in my life. I had given lip service many times to the fact that I was a sinner. I mean, I think a lot of people say, well, yeah, I'm a sinner, you know. Some of us used to do it with, with a little bit of a delight. I've sinned more than you. And, you know, that kind of a thing. Even growing up in the Roman Catholic Church, you know, I'd, sure, I was a sinner. Why else go to confession? I mean, you know, who would want to do that if you weren't really a sinner? Sit there and talk through a fence to a guy, you know, and stuff. It's crazy. So, I mean, in a general sense, sure, I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. But there came a moment in time, and it's a precious moment in the life of every individual when there's a conviction of sin, from, and you think, this is, this is who I really am. This is how God really sees I'm, 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 and you, you know, I, I literally thought that I might die before I could get saved and, and I would be lost forever be, and I deserved it. And so these men came under this kind of Holy Spirit conviction. And then Peter said to them, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We need a little context to understand Peter's statement. Baptism meant something different to this Jewish crowd than it does to us. A lot of people don't realize this, but baptism was an existing public ritual familiar to the Jews. It was something required of non-Jews who wished to convert to Judaism. So let's say you were an, uh, an Italian, which would be a good thing. Well, after all, Rome ruled the world, you know. But anyway, so let's say you were an Italian and you came to Jerusalem on business and you got fascinated with Judaism and monotheistic religion. And I mean, you just, you thought, man, the Jewish religion, that's the way to go. I mean, God spoke to Moses on, on a mountain. I mean, that's pretty cool. That's better than Zeus on Mount Olympus. I mean, you know, I mean, this is a real thing. You want to become a Jew, one of the things that you had to do in order to convert to Judaism was be water baptized. Now, in fact, non-Jews who wished to convert to Judaism had to do three things, and I want you to see how important these are in what Peter said this morning. They had to be circumcised, they had to offer a sacrifice, 
and they had to be water baptized. Now, I believe the Jews on the day of Pentecost who were saved became Jews for real. Ethnically, they were already Hebrew, I know that. But they were not completed as Jews spiritually. So they converted, in a sense, to becoming real spiritual Jews. I'm gonna show you that they were circumcised, that they offered a sacrifice, and then they were baptized. Now, all of the men had been physically circumcised according to Jewish law. If you, were a, you had a, a male baby, he was circumcised on the eighth day. And it was the mark of their covenant, the fleshly mark of the Jewish covenant. But physical circumcision was always only an outward symbol of an inward work elsewhere understood to be the circumcision of the heart. Paul the Apostle talks about this. Uh, the Old Testament talks about this, that there needs to be a cutting away of the flesh of the heart so that the heart is spiritual towards God, a circumcision of the heart. And this is why it is so important in verse 37 where it says what about their heart? They were cut to the heart. Now, we immediately read that and we think, oh, they were, they were moved emotionally or, or it really gripped them or it grabbed them. That, that. But this means something more than that. It really means they were circumcised in their heart. The Holy Spirit of God took the word of God as a knife and he circumcised the hearts of those who believed that day and they were circumcised for the first time for real. All of them had offered many animal sacrifices throughout their lives for the temporary remission of sins. After all, that's what they were doing at the Passover, and many of them had stayed from Passover now to Pentecost to offer the sacrificial lamb for the remission of their sins. Now they were learning that Jesus of Nazareth, in his death on the cross, was the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world for their sins. He was the full and final sacrifice offered on their behalf for the remission of sins. The only sacrifice they would ever need to offer was to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Water baptism is the third thing a true convert would do. It was a public testimony of the conversion Although already physically Jews, the Jews in this Pentecost crowd who believed had become real, completed Jews, circumcised in the heart by the Spirit of God, thanks to the once-for-all sacrifice on their behalf of the Son of God. Peter was led by the Spirit to tell them to repent. Obviously, it means to change your mind, and it correlates with them having a circumcised heart and, and the ability to do that. When he said to be baptized for the remission of sins, it can be translated, be baptized on account of the remission of your sins. In other words, since your hearts have been circumcised and since your sins have been remitted by Jesus once for all sacrifice, go ahead and give the public testimony of your conversion through water baptism. Here's another way of thinking about this. When they were baptized, other unbelieving Jews would inevitably ask, why are you circumcised Jews who have the sacrificial system acting like Gentiles who must convert to become Jews? To which they could then testify that true circumcision is a matter of the heart 
and that Jesus was the final offering for sin, and they were converting not to Judaism, but to real Judaism as it had always been presented by God. Might Peter have also meant that the physical rite of water baptism is always necessary in order for you to be truly saved? Some unfortunately think that is exactly what Peter meant. They've built whole denominations around the teaching that unless you are water baptized, you cannot be saved. Doesn't matter what you believe, doesn't matter, you have to be baptized for the remission of sins. I, I think I've shown you that isn't what Peter meant, but some people still believe that. And I was thinking about this and wanting to explain it, and I thought, well, since Peter started this controversy, why don't we just ask him what he meant? And you know, we can, not through a medium, but through the word of God, because Peter clarifies exactly what he meant about baptism in his first letter. Now, I don't normally do this, but I'm gonna have you turn over to 1 Peter chapter three. Keep your finger or a pencil or something in uh, Acts chapter two and turn over to 1 Peter chapter three. We're gonna look at verse 21. While writing about the flood of Noah, Peter mentions baptism and he says baptism saves us. But then he immediately defines what he means by baptism saving us. 1 Peter 3, 21 Peter says, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, uh, parentheses, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. We can stop there. And so here's what Peter does. He mentions baptism. He says it saves us, but then he immediately tells you what baptism symbolizes. It's an outward show of an inward work. Outward water baptism as a ritual saves no one. It is simply the outward show of the inward work, which here he calls the answer of a good conscience towards God. You know, I bet Peter got tired of people being confused about this baptism issue. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he preaches this masterful sermon on the day of Pentecost with this beautiful conversion symbolism. And then just, you know, people are just like they are today, of like passions, and I'm sure they thought, I wonder if Peter meant that we have to be baptized in order to be saved. And they were teaching and talking about water baptism as necessary, and I bet Peter in his private prayer closet said, Lord, let me write another epistle and inspire me to say something to clarify what you meant about baptism. I don't wanna go down in history as the guy who confused everybody about water baptism. And he must have been really excited when he got to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, and he was able to mention baptism, which saves us not water baptism, but the inward baptizing, as it were, of our conscience. And so it's, it's pretty clear to me. Now, will you solve, as you can turn back over to Acts now, people who believe that you have to be baptized to be saved, they're not gonna go for any of this, I'm sad to say. I mean, some people are just hardcore. Uh, just love them. Be thankful you're not them because you're teaching that you have to be saved by grace through faith plus works of righteousness, which you have done. And everywhere else, the Bible condemns that. And that's a whole nother area of argument. Whatever Peter says in Acts chapter two, it cannot contradict what the rest of the Bible says. 
and, and the, the whole of Scripture testifies that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other ritual or rite. Why are we baptized? Because Jesus commanded us to be baptized. What does it do? It gives a public testimony. It's the outward showing of the inward work, just like it's always been. And so I hope that clears things up for us. It won't convince anyone who believes otherwise, but uh, at least we have a basis for what we believe and what we don't believe. Now back to our text. Peter mentioned that they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then he said in verse 39, for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. All who are afar off is not necessarily a geographical reference. It's really a technical phrase to, uh, which to a Jew meant Gentiles. Jews were near to God in the sense that they had the covenants and the promises and the law and all of those things. Other people, Gentiles, all non-Jews were afar off and had to convert. Now, Peter was saying this that's happening, this new age, it's for Jews and Gentiles alike. And we'll see how that unfolds in the book of Acts. It was tough for the Jews to really acknowledge and accept that Gentiles were being saved just like they were, but God is opening up the door here to letting us know that everyone is saved the same way. As the book of Acts progresses, we'll see that salvation was for all, as many, it says here, as the Lord our God will call. Now, does that mean the number he will call is a predetermined, limited number? See, I love Peter no formal training in theology, and he hits all of the really difficult theological concepts in his very first evangelical sermon. Peter had earlier stated in verse 21, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If this wasn't inspired by the Holy Spirit, you could say he was confused. On the one hand, he says God has to call you. Sounds like he chooses a certain group of people. On the other hand, he says whoever will call upon me, I'll save. It's another one of those dilemmas that you are never going to figure out. So quit trying. I mean that, and in the, in the, it sounds, you know, some people might think, well, I'm going to figure it out. You won't. <laughs> I thought I could at one point, and I've read everybody else who thinks they have, and it, they haven't. Lewis Berry Chafer, founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, great guy, love his books, I have nothing really bad to say about him, neat guy. It's trying to solve some of these dilemmas. Which is it? God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, sovereignty, free will. So he finally came to the conclusion, well, here's what he did. He went through the Bible and as much as he could, he listed every scripture that seemed to indicate that God was absolutely sovereign and chose us from before the foundation of the world. And then he went through the scripture and he listed every scripture he could find that seemed to indicate that man had free will and that whosoever could would uh, you know, choose the Lord. In his final analysis, there were a few more verses on the God sovereignty side than there are on the man free will side. I mean, there's a bunch of verses over there. But because there were more on one side, it tipped the scales in that direction for him. And he began to teach that God is sovereign and man has no free will. And, and it, it just skewed it because of a preponderance of Scripture. Do you know how many doctrines are built like on one or two Scriptures? I mean, you just can't do that. You can't do that. The Bible absolutely teaches that if you're saved, it's because God chose you in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And it also absolutely teaches that you, if you're saved, 
put your personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ as a matter of free will. And, and really, I'm, I'm saving you a lot of time, money on books and everything. Just, I'm telling you right now, if you'll just believe that, not because I say it, but because that's what the scripture teaches. Like right here, Peter's telling us God calls you and you choose him, then you're, you'll be money ahead. Verse 40, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. We don't have the whole text of Peter's sermon. That's interesting, we sometimes overlook that. I myself have often said, Peter in the middle of talking is interrupted and they're saying, oh, what must we do to be saved? As if Peter didn't know how to give an evangelistic sermon. Well, I'm not right about that because it says that with many other words, he exhorted them saying to be saved. In other words, Peter did give an altar call. He, he applied all of this and then he urged them, get saved. Your Messiah has come and he's risen from the dead and he's reigning in heaven. We're in the last days. It's all coming down. You can be saved. It's a beautiful thing. And can you imagine how mind-blowing this would have been to the 120 they had just been baptized with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking Italian, <laughs> predominantly, and some other languages. Uh, and, and then Peter gets up. You're probably thinking, Peter, what are you doing? You know, um, if you're the other disciple, Peter gets up and he, he starts quoting from the Psalms and putting this masterful sermon together with three points and then a conclusion. And, and then all of a sudden, 3,000 people get saved. I mean, this is mind-blowing. They didn't even know what they were doing. They had no idea. There were no counselors. Peter couldn't even say, the buses will wait. <laughs> I mean, there was no scheme or plan for it. it was just, it's just the work of God, the Holy Spirit, and would to God, not that we would just be lame and spontaneous all the time and never have any planning or think about what we're doing, but would to God that we would trust in the work of God, the Holy Spirit, through the word of God to do what he wants to accomplish, that we would pull away from manipulating people and from personal strategies and all of this kind of thing, just allow God to be God, keeping our focus on Jesus Christ and wanting to just portray him as the living, risen Savior, the baptizer with the Holy Spirit who still lives to save men. Jesus had the right credentials. He's raised from the dead. He's reigning in heaven. He fulfilled all the rites and rituals of God's law so you can be saved by grace through faith alone apart from any works. If you're a Christian, you learn from Peter to keep the focus on Jesus and to do it with hope, the hope of his soon coming and the hope that that person can be saved. Whenever you're talking to anybody, you don't have to wonder, boy, are you one of the chosen few? Or am I just wasting my breath? You're talking to a person who has an eternal soul whom God says of them, I'm not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. Share hopefully, joyfully what the Lord has done. If you're not yet a believer, the gift is for you if you'll receive it. But you need to be cut in your heart you need the sacrifice of Jesus to remit your sins and then you can prove that he is your savior in your public testimony as you repent and turn to him 
baptism being a part of that. Let's pray together. Father, how glorious you are and how grateful we are for your work on that first day, that birthday of the church. I hope that we can be in some sense as mind-blown as the 120 uh, disciples, Lord. Just standing in awe of what you accomplished that day with just a few words from Peter who was a man who had spent time with you. He'd been with you three and a half years. <clears throat> Lord, many of us have walked with you longer than that. I pray that you would fill us with joy, that that joy would be our strength, that we would always share the good news with the bad news, and that we would give off, in a spiritual sense, hope, and that people would be drawn to that. Lord, we are living in the last days. I pray that we would not be fearful of them. Yes, you're going to dissolve the heavens and the earth, but we, Lord, know that, and we're going to be in heaven with you for all eternity, and I pray that we would live from eternity backwards and, and, and be about the business that you've called us to. Wherever you've put us, Lord, wherever you've sown us into this world, that we would share with others through our silent witness and testimony and through words, Lord, that you would give us that Jesus is, in fact, Lord in Christ and he's ready to save. He's able to save to the uttermost those who put their faith and trust in him. You know, as we close today and as we continue to pray with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I, th I think I do want to give an opportunity. There may be one or two people here this morning. Uh, maybe you're here as a visitor. You've been, maybe you've been here for years and you just have never really given your heart to Jesus Christ. You've never asked him to save you from your sins. I think it would be a good morning for us to ask you to put your faith and trust in the Lord. And uh, one of the ways that we do that here is, is we uh, explain the gospel and then we just ask you if you'll reach out to the Lord. There's a scripture in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Isaiah which indicates that God's arm is not so short that it cannot save you, but our sin has separated us. And the picture is kind of of a rescue where if you'll reach out to God, he's ready to rescue you from that place of sin and death and judgment. And so we ask people if they'll just raise their hand to acknowledge that, yes, I, that's what I want to happen in my life. I want to reach out to God, spiritually speaking, and have him save me. And so while believers are praying, we're going to sing a chorus, and, and I'd like you to examine your heart. Be real with God. It's not about uh, anything else except you and your relationship with God. And, and, and if you're not certain that you're saved this morning, if you can't honestly 100% say that I know that if I died tonight, I would be absent from my body and present with the Lord based on His sacrifice on my behalf, then you need to raise your hand and reach out to God and he will save you. And so it's a time really to do business with God. It's not about who you came with or what's going to happen after this moment. It's about whether or not you're ready for eternity. And so let's sing and pray. And if you're not a believer, search your heart and reach out to God. And after we sing, I'll give you an opportunity to raise your hand so we can pray for you. We're not going to embarrass you. We just want to pray for you and help you to know the Lord. Let's sing together. Christians pray. I'm amazed with what you've done.
you sacrifice your sinless You conquered death and made a way Now I can freely come and give you praise Jesus, I will wait for you you God nothing can compare to the greatness of your beauty your glory your majesty there's no one like you God heaven and earth declare the greatness of your beauty your glory your majesty all the things that Peter said about Jesus on the day of Pentecost are still true today. He has the rightful credentials. He is indeed risen from the dead and lives at the right hand of the Father. We've been showing you week by week that we're living in the last days just before he's coming back to take his church home and then to pour out his wrath upon the earth. Bible says that today is a day of salvation for all who would call upon the Lord. Peter in his sermon said, whoever will call upon the Lord can be saved. There's nothing you need do. You can't clean up your life. You don't need to leave here and try and, you know, get things right or make things straight. You can't do that even if you wanted to. The Lord will do that for you and through you once he comes and saves you and dwells with you. And so I want to ask in these closing moments of our service this morning, if there's anyone here that would receive the Lord, if you would reach out to the Lord, raise your hand so that we can pray for you. You're here by God's divine appointment. You know that you're not a Christian. You know that you're not saved. You know that if you died, you wouldn't go to heaven. Raise your hand so that we can pray for you. Anyone at all. God bless you in the back. Anyone else? Leave your hand up just a little bit. God bless you. The Lord is doing a work. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin that you are less than perfect, of righteousness that there is a standard of righteousness that God requires that you can never achieve and of judgment to come. And then he shows you Jesus risen from the dead, having taken his, uh, your sin upon himself. Anyone else here this morning, you'd know the Lord as your savior. Raise your hand so we can pray for you. Anyone at all. Praise the Lord. Now, Lord, we thank you for the work of your spirit in the lives of those several individuals who raised their hand. May today be a, a moment of, of Pentecost for them, Lord. May it be their day of Pentecost when you come upon them and fill them with your Holy Spirit. For anyone else, Lord, here that uh, is holding back, I pray that by your spirit, Lord, you would call them by name and cause them to call upon your name. Save them, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together.